0: We are going to continue in our study of the book of Acts this morning, Uh, chapter 16, and I have actually marked off a pretty big chunk, which we probably won't get to, (laughs) Uh, but we already started uh, chapter 16 last week, and so a little bit of what we're going to cover this morning or I'm going to read this morning kind of has more to do with what we did last week and then move on. So beginning with verse 6 in chapter 16, and they went, this is Paul and Silas, and whoever happens to be with them, uh, through the region, region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some, some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a, man, uh, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyrotira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed us, uh, or followed Paul and us, crying out, "These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation." And this kept uh, she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened fastened their feet in the stocks. After midnight, Paul and Silas were... But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, uh, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us in prison, and they, uh, and they now throw us out secretly. No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them uh, and deported. As we said last week, or I think, or the week before that, possibly both weeks, uh, one of the things that becomes very obvious as you're studying the Book of Acts is that that Paul set out in in uh, Silas, just as as Paul and Barnabas had, they set out on this missionary journey, possibly not really even having much of an idea where they were going to wind up going to, but but being very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, and we see here this presented in this particular part of this book, and that is that at times the Holy Spirit prevented Paul and Silas from going into particular areas. Consequently, what we conclude for it is this, is Paul and Silas were being led by the Holy Spirit. He was the one that was determining the path of their missionary journey, not the men, the Holy Spirit. They continue to move as the Holy Spirit leads them. And he leads them to a place called Troas. Which is on the extreme western tip of Asia Minor. And there Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man. And Macedonia was directly across the Aegean Sea from Troas. God sends him a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. The Holy Spirit determining the path that the missionaries are following, directing their way. You and I need to learn the art of following the Holy Spirit. Every one of us is called to be an evangelist, some to a greater degree than others. But every one of us is called to share our faith with other people when we're given the opportunity to do that. If you do much of this, what you're going to find is that sometimes the Holy Spirit will close doors. Other times the Holy Spirit will open doors. Some people you share the gospel with will completely reject the gospel message. Others will give serious consideration to it. But ultimately not accept it but there will be others who will hear and they will accept it receive it I don't imagine there's anyone that's ever done much of evangelism who can say is every person I ever talked to about Jesus came to faith in Christ wasn't true for Paul. I don't believe it's true for you either. Certainly isn't true for me. I'd imagine what you would find in today's culture is probably the majority of people that maybe you've shared your faith with never have come to faith in Christ. You know, our culture is growing secularly, leaps and bounds, it seems, at this point in history. Christianity, for, for the last hundreds of years and principally the last 200 years and before that Christianity has had an unbelievable influence upon the affairs and activities that have taken place in the United States it is the Christian faith that has set apart America as the greatest nation that has ever existed on the planet in regard to personal freedoms not that it's perfect but compare. To the rest, we have to know this, that God's hand has been upon our land in a way that it has not been on other people and other nations. God is what has made America great, not the people here. We're called to be evangelists, but I want to remind you of something this morning. You cannot save anybody. You couldn't even save yourself. So why would we think that we we had the ability to save anybody? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can cause a person to be born again so that they will receive and accept the gospel. I've actually heard people at times bragging about the number of people that they have brought into the kingdom of God. Keeping a list of names. Almost as if they were bragging about it. I cringe when I hear things like that because people are taking credit for something that only the Holy Spirit can do. Paul has this vision given to him by the Holy Spirit of this Macedonian man pleading for them to come So again, the Holy Spirit is leading them now to leave Asia Minor and cross over into Macedonia, which is northern Greece. They first stop at a place called Neapolis. From there they go on to a place called Philippi. Churches started there and will receive at least two letters from the apostle Paul in the years to come. At least one letter rather. No telling how many others. You need to understand something is is the New Testament is basically built upon, you know, once you get beyond the gospels and even the gospels themselves to a degree are based upon letters that were written by particular people called by God, that were sent to particular people or to particular churches. The book that we know as Philippians was a letter that Paul will, in years to come, write to that church that begins in Philippi as we're studying here in the passage. you know anything about Philippians, you know that it's very often called the letter or the epistle of, starts with a J, joy. <laughs> it's, Paul, it's a, it's, it's a, a sl- celebrating letter that Paul writes, rejoicing in the great faith that the Philippians church continues to express and live by and, and live in. We know here that you know Paul was Jewish and Paul continued to practice worship on the Sabbath. He was very intent on keeping the Sabbath day holy, and part of that had to do with worshipping with other people. It just so happens that in Philippi there wasn't a temple. They went out of the city to the riverside where they supposed there was a place of prayer. It must have been a common practice in those days for cities very often to have places of prayer. And perhaps they were very often by rivers. But there he encounters this woman named Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. He was a worshiper of God. Presumably a Jew, but maybe not. They're very likely, very wealthy. Notice here in verse 14, I want you to understand this. God not only leads them to places, he leads them to people. Particular people. This encounter that that Paul has with Lydia takes place because the Holy Spirit has accomplished everything necessary to bring Lydia and Paul to to that riverside on that day at that time. He has orchestrated every detail to make this happen. This is truly a divine appointment. She was presumably a Jew. We don't know that, but presumably she was. And what do we read here in verse 14? The Lord opened her heart. It doesn't say that Lydia opened her own heart. What it tells us is that something was required from God for her to accept the message that Paul was preaching. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can bring spiritually dead people to spiritual life. As Jesus said, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. My whole point here is this, my friends, is that this is all the result of a divine appointment. God doing everything necessary to bring these two people who did not know each other at all before this to the same point in time, to the same place in time, that they would have this conversation. But even having the conversation was not enough to change Lydia's heart. The Holy Spirit had to cause her to be born again. He had to enlighten her. He had to open her mind and her heart she would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to remind us this morning that God saves sinners. Sinners in no way, shape, or form ultimately save themselves. Yes, we make a decision for Christ. But the only reason we do is because God enables a dead sinner to do that. Every person that has ever known Jesus owes that to God himself. He has enabled us to do that. And what we find here is an example of a household baptism. Lydia not only professes faith and she's baptized, but her whole household is baptized right along with her. You may not realize it, but this is one of the passages that is very often used to argue in favor of infant baptism. Because the idea was this was Lydia was wealthy. That meant her household was very large. And for us to believe that there were no small children in that household is possibly not a very good place to go. So what happens to Paul? He winds up in prison again. Actually, this is possibly the first time. We don't know. We don't have a complete record of the life of Paul. In 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 11, verses 16 through 19, Paul's writing many years later, way on the other end of his life in ministry. And there he writes a, a rather lengthy list of the trials and tribulations that he has suffered for the cause of Christ. And what he writes there is many things, but one of those is this. He doesn't say imprisonments. He says far more imprisonments. In other words, I've spent more time in jail for the gospel than anybody else has. So here he is. won't be the last time. Very similar account here we find with Paul that we found with Peter earlier on. Placed in prison on false charges, so on and so on and so on, and miraculously delivered from prison by God. This time God sends an earthquake. <laughs> I doubt really seriously if anyone in this room has has literally spent a single minute in prison as a consequence of being a Christian. Literally. Doesn't mean that we don't have our own little prisons and that sort of thing. But I'm talking about real physical in jail kind of prison. Does that mean we cannot relate to where Paul is? I don't think that's true at all. Because prisons come in various forms, like addictions, failing or failed relationships with other people. suffering is part of living in a fallen and broken world and it's true for christians and it's true for unbelievers there's a sense in which sin itself is a prison do you agree jesus alludes to that in some of the things that he says he says the son shall set you free He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive. So we may not understand what literal prison is, but we understand what it means to be imprisoned in sin. We all do. But we also know what it means to be set free. Paul and Silas suffered imprisonment for doing something good. Something that most people would have agreed was a good thing for them to do. They exercised an evil spirit who was inhabiting a slave girl whose owner was making money through her ability to tell fortunes. It's one thing to suffer for doing bad. But it's quite another thing to suffer for doing something that is good. It's not what we expect. We expect that when we do good things, then good things are, are going to happen to us and for us as a consequence of it. They were put in the innermost part of the prison, the most secure place in the prison. From which escape was virtually impossible, just like Peter had been. And then only after they had been brutally beaten. Can you imagine being beat to a pulp just because you're a Christian? It's not even on our radar. I don't imagine anyone here has ever even suffered one physical blow because they were a Christian. Now let me just tell you, if I was going through what Paul and Silas were at this point, sitting in the innermost part of the prison after being beaten and all that other stuff, My whole thing would be I would be having a conversation with God, and my conversation would be something like this What in the world are you doing? Why have you allowed this to happen? But we don't find that with Paul and Silas at all. What are they doing? (laughs) They're singing and they're praying, (laughs) they're rejoicing. What would you be doing? Lamenting? Having evil thoughts against your captors and the people who have made you suffer? Perhaps you might even be angry with God because he's allowed it to happen. Sometimes I get frustrated. I don't know about Does anybody here ever get frustrated? Circumstances just, just frustrates the mess out of you. And very often I'll have conversations with God during those times. You know what I say to him a lot? I find myself saying this a lot. What in the world are you doing? Why are you letting this happen to me? That mindset is not on Paul and Silas's radar. But Suddenly, this earthquake in the doors to the prison fly open, and everyone in the not just Paul and Silas, but evidently everyone in the prison was released. And what does the jailer do at this point? He's assumed that all of his prisoners have escaped. So he's going to kill himself. Better, better him than dying the way that he's going to do otherwise. At least he can make it quick and get it over with. But he hears a cry. Someone crying out. It's Paul saying, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. We are all here. No one has left. Comes to Paul in silence. And when he does, he falls down before them, trembling in fear. He doesn't know a whole lot at this point, but he knows something has taken place here that he's never experienced in his whole lifetime. And it evoked fear in him. Maybe some things like this are going through his mind. These men are either gods themselves. You need to understand that that was kind of an assumption that sometimes took place in those days. Whoever the god was that they worshipped was certainly a far greater god than the god that he worshipped. He understands something, and what he understands is this, is this God is worthy of complete and humble devotion. It was a God that he hungered for, a God that he, he desired to have for himself. He wanted what Paul and Silas had. The God of Paul and Silas was obviously a most powerful God. That is very often how gods were pictured in those days. Powerful, mighty, angry, destructive, compassionless, merciless. Now, we worship an all-powerful God, a God that's far more powerful than this jailer ever anticipated God being. You know that, right? But he comes to understand something, which was not common thought in those days at all. You need to understand that. Exactly the common thought was opposite. that is this God is not only almighty and all-powerful, this God is also compassionate. He cares about people. He cared about Paul and Silas. He wants that God. He wants, he hungers, he longs for what Paul and Silas have. And he doesn't. You ever wonder how the people in the community around you look upon you? Maybe there are people in your neighborhood that just they know you're a church person and whatever and and they may jumped to some conclusions and things think things like they think they're holier than thou they're bible thumpers you know so on and so on think they're better than other people you ever hear anything like that I wasn't with you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard some of your testimonies over the years. You've heard my testimony, some of you, to some degree, some of them in a pretty detailed degree. My own conversion was a long-involved process that took place over a lengthy period of time. It was not instantaneous. The jailers, on the other hand, was immediate. The whole point here, I just want to make very clear to you, sometimes people do immediately come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it's real and legitimate. Very often, on the other hand, some people struggle with it for a very lengthy period of time before they actually succumb to it or give in to it. It's all according to God's timing. He's the one that controls all of this stuff. He doesn't my point here is he doesn't save absolutely everybody in exactly the same manner. Your story probably is somewhat different than mine is. Just want to remind us, this is biblical teaching that conversion is always a result of God acting in the life of a person, Something we have no control over. It is always according to the Lord's timing. And according to His power. But the jailer was baptized immediately. He didn't have to go through pastor's class. He didn't. On the spot. And not only him, but also his family. You may not realize it, but this is one of the primary texts that is used to argue for infant baptism. Because this is not the only household baptism that takes place. And assume that there were no small children in any of those households is probably very biased. Paul and Silas don't leave, even though they've been miraculously delivered. They don't see the circumstances as an opportunity to get out of Dodge. They know that God has more work in Philippi for them to do. In the meantime, the magistrates who had charged Paul and Silas falsely and imprisoned them Have they had continued on in their discussion, and they finally have concluded they haven't done anything wrong. (laughs) Nothing worthy of being in prison for. So they send word to the jailer to release them. This is the first time you're going to see Paul pull the Roman citizen card. That it's not the last time. As a Roman citizen, Paul had privileges and rights that other people did not have. And they have been grossly, unbelievably violated by what's taken place with them. In other words, if he wants to make trouble for these guys, he can make big trouble for these guys. They could all be in prison for what they have done to Paul, a Roman citizen. what they have done is completely out of accord with roman law so what are we to glean from all of this and one of those things i think is most important for us to 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 think about give consideration to is To be very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now let me tell you, if if you're a believer, you're sitting here today and you're a believer, then the Holy Spirit indwells you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so you don't have to look very far to find Him. Ever, sometimes you feel really like you're being prodded to do something or to say something. Ever feel like that? You ever think sometimes maybe it's the Holy Spirit prodding me to open my mouth? <laughs> How much do we even give thought? To the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, the charismatic movement, you know, it became such a huge thing in the last 50 years. And there are a lot of people that are very negative about the charismatic movement. There's some Christians who would have nothing good to say about the charismatic movement. And there's been some probably bad things that have come out of it. You need to understand that. But let me just tell you this. The charismatic movement actually did accomplish something very important. And that was they got the rest of the attention of the rest of the church that there in fact is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whom we hardly ever talk about. We need to be sensitive. To that Holy Spirit, because let me tell you, if you are a believer, that same Holy Spirit we're talking about here in this passage indwells you, He lives inside of you, and He will enable you to do anything that God calls you to do, anything and absolutely everything God calls you to do, the Holy Spirit will enable you to do it. That you have to yield to him to make that happen. Very often we are controlled more by fears and things like that than we are by other things. Be sensitive. He is in you. He is part of who you are. And he will enable you to do whatever he calls you to do. No matter how difficult it might seem to be. The only thing he asks is that we trust him. That we lean on him, on his power, on his strength, on his ability, not our own. He is what makes you who you are. He is the one that will empower you to do whatever He calls you to do. Lean on Him. Not on your own understanding. Because your own understanding is still influenced by sin and sinful thoughts and sinful feelings. Let me tell you, I think if the church today as a whole would learn to lean on the Holy Spirit, that you would see a transformation take place in the church and in this world that has never taken place in all of history. It is He who transforms us. It is He who enables us. We pray to the Father and we pray to the Son. How often do we pray the Holy Spirit? We talk about Jesus and we talk about God the Father. How often in our Reformed circles do we ever even talk about the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the Trinity. He's God, as much God as Jesus and the Father are. And I really believe this, if we learn to lean on him, things will change for the far better. Amen. Happy New Year, by the way.